G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, ending the month of October, where tonight, Dave, we are talking season 25. Season 25. I am looking forward to this. And I think based on the feedback we've had, so are a lot of our listeners. That's right. When we last uh, threw it out to our listeners to, to do a uh, season, and we said, look, what, which of these four seasons do you want? Season 25 didn't win, but it went pretty close. It went very close, and we were both very keen to talk about it. So who needs an excuse? It's our podcast. We're talking about what we like, <laughs> and exactly. we're talking about season 25. Exactly. And particularly when I looked at the calendar, and I thought, hmm, this actually debuted in October of 1988, and this is October. So ooh, it's a lazy, what, 32 years ago that it debuted? Let's talk about it in the month of its debut. Fantastic. No, very keen for this one. All right. Well, we've got a lot to crack through, so let's jump into the news first. Dave, what have you got for us? Uh, So the first item is just an update on the Blu-ray collections in that there was a tweet circulated earlier this week where a member of the production team said, we are back to recording them. And that explains why, as we've speculated before on the podcast, there have been no announcements about what the next Blu-rays were because obviously filming of all the extras shut down and it, it, it completely left my mind that there are all these extras that need to be recorded and docos and interviews and on the couch things and they couldn't do that so uh, they have now started recording these again so hopefully we'll very soon find out what the next one's going to be that would be great i'm i'm really pleased they didn't half ass it either and go like oh we've got to interview i don't know davo let's get him on zoom and record that you know that would just be awful <laughs> It's interesting you say that because last month we were talking about how Doctor Who was going to be slower to produce the next season because of COVID requirements and COVID safe workplaces. And obviously the Blu-rays have been put back as well. But I was listening to Kevin Smith's Fat Man Beyond podcast yesterday, driving home from work, and they were actually talking about the way that some of the TV shows that Hollywood's making at the moment are doing it in a COVID safe way. And, And how there were people who were basically hired to work out who there is that would normally be working on the soundstage or in the studio or on the lot and actually doesn't need to be there. So they're all working from home or from remote locations. Some of them are obvious, like the guys who pay the bills and the guys who do the finances. They don't need to be be on the lot so they can go away. But even people who are in the gallery and actually doing all their work via monitor anyway are actually in some cases, doing it remotely. And apparently, now this is what they said, I haven't had it first first source, but apparently a couple of episodes of the coming season of The Mandalorian were directed by somebody from their home because as long as you're in front of the monitor and you can see the studio, doesn't matter if the monitor's in your home or in the gallery. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Isn't that amazing? So I wonder if anything like that is uh, happening here um, or whether they're able, because it's a smaller thing, to all be there. But it was just such an interesting insight. And I guess a lot of things are going to be happening this way. And also there's going to be differences between studio where you can do that and location where you don't have a gallery. So mm. you can't do that. So, yeah, just, just a little interesting tidbit that came off that piece of news. I wonder how many scenes in the next uh, season of Riverdale will be Archie on the phone to people rather than talking in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'll be a bit of that as well, I suspect. 
Mm, all right, moving on. A new book is coming out that I'm very interested in, but we'll get to that in a moment because I can't actually get my hands on it. It's uh, Doctor Who Adventures in Lockdown, Dave. A lot of these short stories have come out over the past year. You know, Radio Times would say, oh, look, uh, Stephen Moffat's written a short story. Russell T. Davis has written a short story. And here, they're, they're all collected in, into a book for children in need, along with some new short stories. And this really interests me from Neil Gaiman, Mark Gatiss, and your favourite, Vinay Patel, Dave. Oh, I haven't heard anything about that, but my curiosity is now piqued. Well, don't let it peak too much because, as I said oh, at the okay. start, I can't I can't get my hands on this because it is a uh, it's a it's for children in need and it's it's meant to only be sold from UK retailers. And I thought, well, if I go to UK Amazon, which is kind of hard to buy stuff from at the moment because there's that whole GST thing. They're, they're tax dodgers, Rob. You can say it. They're tax dodgers. <laughs> there you go. You said it, Dave. And I I went to the page for this and it said no, you, you, this can't ship to your area. And so I looked at yeah. Book Depository, which, as we know, is based in the UK and is owned by Amazon, though. Uh, they don't even have the book listed. So this is going to become one of these things where I think if people get a whiff of it, they might buy some copies and throw them up on eBay, probably at a slight price hike. I don't care. I think it'll be worth it. I think there's some interesting stuff in there and it'll be nice to have it in an actual book rather than just reading off a web page. Yeah, no, I'm definitely curious about that. And I'll, I'll check it out myself. I, I don't know how much I'll pay for one, but I'm certainly curious. Mm. Yeah, look, things things can get out of control when people scalp them, but hopefully the uh, the goodness in their hearts, they'll look at that cover and see the bandaged bear and see if it's for children in need and not scalp us too badly. Yeah, it's interesting that being a charity, they're not your money and my money is as, as good for children in need as anybody's money. I wonder if there is actually like a, a legislative or a tax issue with them being a you know charity exempt status or something i don't know what the uk laws are maybe that's the issue but i mean it is the same reason why or similar reason i guess why uh um, dimensions in time isn't supposed to be formally released because you can't make a profit out of something that was done for charity yeah precisely right so look i'm, I'm very interested in this book will i get a copy that remains to be seen <laughs> yeah well keep us updated i will do uh, moving on to the mini topics, and I've got the first one for the podcast today. I just wanted to mention that I've been watching some William Hartnell stories. There's a surprise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I basically had the urge to sit down and watch The Dalek Invasion of Earth because it is one of my top ten favourite stories. It is my favourite Dalek story. And and I did sit down over about three evenings and rewatched that and absolutely enjoyed it. But I, I just was reminded this is about as bleak as Doctor Who gets. This is an utterly, utterly bleak story. The number of characters that you are introduced to, learn learn about them, they're, they're fully rounded human beings, and then die horribly is uh, is really quite incredible. And But, but even, even the scale of it, like the number of extras they have up at that mining set in Bedfordshire and all the stuff with the Daleks going around Westminster, and I actually took it just with my phone, you know, pointing at the TV. I took a clip of, you know, about, about a minute or so of the Daleks around Westminster yeah. and sent it to my, some of my friends who work in various um, buildings around Westminster in the UK who are Doctor Who fans, and they were just blown away by it. So that was kind of cool. Um, I also watched The Chase. I enjoyed that. Uh, and for the first time in a long time, I watched Galaxy 4. Oh, okay. And what, what inspired that? 
Uh, I just realised that it was a Hartnell story I hadn't watched for a very long time. I mean, I know I saw it for the first time when that bootleg copy was circulating just after it was found. I then watched it when the DVD release came out on the remastered version of the Aztecs. But I don't think I've watched it since. And it was interesting because even though this was the third time I'd seen it, it's the third time in about 10 years. And I actually didn't remember quite a lot of it. So it was really exciting to be watching this this episode again uh, and it's still sort of feeling like a, a newly recovered episode oh very nice very nice indeed moving on uh listeners if you look at your device you may see a podcast sitting on there that dropped the day before this podcast dropped called primary sources please don't delete it it's actually something new that we're making here and i thought i'd talk about it briefly some time ago back on the podcast we had uh Bob Fleming from Proctor Who and Jim Cameron from the Crinoid podcast do something called the Letter Lords, where they'd read letters to DWM from that month and, and talk about them. And Primary Sources is similar yet different. Basically, I'm going to sit down every month and uh, pull out old copies of Doctor Who magazine, say like 20 to 40 years old. So stuff that people were saying about Doctor Who in the, in the 80s and 90s. And not tell my co-host what what it's going to be about, what issue I've picked, and then just start reading letters and see what they have to say about them and just riff on the topics that come up in these letters. And Dave, uh, you were very gracious to be the guinea pig for episode one, which is now <laughs> on our feed. What did you think of the experience? It was a very different experience to recording this because I, I walked in literally with a blank piece of paper in front of me and just <laughs> went where my mind wanted to go. And sometimes that was really easy and there were all sorts of paths I wanted to go down and sometimes there were less obvious paths to go down. So, yeah, it was a very different experience, but it, it really is just, just riffing, just chatting. Yeah, and and the plan is to have it come out every uh, two weeks after this monthly show drops so that you'll have a monthly show. Two weeks later, you'll have primary sources. Two weeks after that, you'll have another monthly show. So we're going to be in your ears a lot more. And also, uh, Dave won't be my co-host on all of these primary sources. I will be reaching out there and grabbing... Uh, other podcasts as we know maybe you know listeners from our audience and seeing what uh, other people want to riff about when uh, i start reading these zany letters from the 80s and 90s and there are some weird things being said in these magazines it must be said absolutely and uh the next time that i'm doing one with you we've already said that we're going to flip it and you'll be my guest and uh, i'm going to be pulling them out of the local fanzine so i'm looking mm. forward to doing that one yeah, that'll be an interesting twist. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, please have a listen to it. It's only about 20 minutes long, 22 minutes long. I think that's going to be our average length. Tell us what you think of the podcast. I think they're quite fun and they'll be very easy listens. I think so. Second topic from me, and something else that I've been watching over the last month, I've been dipping back into the Joss Whedon fair. Uh, I've been working through Firefly in order, which I sort of do every five or six years. I, I go back and watch the whole thing in order, and let's face it, it's only about 18 episodes. It's not hard to do the great journey on. Um, and, and also dipping into sort of episodes in the first couple of seasons of Buffy, uh, some that I'm you know, big fan of and I really enjoy others that I actually wouldn't normally dip back into and I've been trying to make a point of, of watching ones that I haven't seen in a long time. But what really interested me and what I've really noticed is that these shows feel like they've aged a lot since I last watched them and it occurred to me that these are shows that are basically 20 years old. Firefly a little less, Buffy a little more, particularly those early mm. seasons. And for somebody who obviously grew up watching 
the Crotons and the Power of Kroll and Blake Seven and all the rest of that. I I thought at the time that stuff like Buffy and Firefly were incredibly well made with amazing special effects, mm-hmm. even though they weren't, you know, Star Trek League. They were very, very good. I watch them now, though, and I can see the pieces moving in a way I never could before. Yeah. You can look at some of the effects and see, wow, that's a really dodgy effect now by the modern standards. It looks really crap. Um, you can also sort of notice things like where they stake a vampire who falls out of shot so they don't have to use the expensive dusting effect. <laughs> there was one episode I watched where I've never seen it before, I swear, but suddenly I realised that you can see the join where the top of the monster costume has clearly been put onto this guy and doesn't meet with the pants of the costume that have been put on. Um, oh. and, and many other examples like that, or, you know, you can see where Buffy being thrown across the room is clearly a physical effect where she's been pulled on a wire. It's mm. not CGI. I mean, it's still great. I still love them and, and they're, they're, not, they're not bad, but I just thought it was really interesting to see them now getting into this zone of looking old in the way that when we grew up with Classic Who, it looked old. And I do wonder if somebody who was 16 now and turned on to watch Buffy would just go, this is really badly made. Or would it be watchable? I, I'm genuinely curious. But yeah, it just, just struck me that um series do age. Doctor Who isn't the only series that looks shoddier the older it gets, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. But it happens so incrementally and slowly over time that it's always shocking when you finally realise it. It really is, yeah. You know, like, what what could we watch today? Um, I don't know, The Boys. Look at the effects in The Boys. And it's yeah. like, oh, well, that's, that's quite good. That's a superhero-looking effect. Wow. Great for TV. But when will that look dated? In 20 years' time, will that just look ridiculous to us? Uh, isn't that scary to think? <laughs> like, Because what will TV look like in 20 years' time? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I said it before, but the last time I did a Harry Potter rewatch, the first one of those, there's still some effects that look amazing, but there are others. Uh, the Quidditch tournament particularly, where you look at them and go, that actually was very early CGI, and it looks it. Yeah, yeah, agree. Shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, what have you got for us, Rob? Finally, just a quick one. Sometimes I throw out uh, tweets that are uh, a little controversial. And this is the one that got the most traction over the past month. I'll just read the whole tweet to you, Dave, and then we can talk about it. Mm. There's a lot I don't understand in fandom and never will. Top of the list for a couple of decades is the pathological hatred some fans have for being called Whovians. Never thought of it as a really awesome word, but similarly never thought it needed hating either. Question mark. And my God, didn't people jump in on this? Uh, Many people saying, yeah, I don't see a problem with it. Other people saying, well, it's because the Americans created it and I don't want to be an Americanism and blah, you know, and just going crazy about it. And I thought, oh my God, I've lit a powder keg here. Dave, Whovians. It's not a term I personally would ever use, Mm -hmm. but it's not a term that I get remotely worked up about at all. I, I was very interested to see and read what, the feedback was from those who do get worked up by it. Uh, I kind of have a theory that it people don't necessarily like to be defined by being a Doctor Who fan, uh, in, in the same way that a lot of people reject from a lot of uh, things, whether they're innate attributes or hobbies or whatever. They don't, they don't want to be defined as just that. That's just something that they like and they're happy to enjoy it, but it's not who they are. Mm. Um, I wonder whether consciously or subconsciously there was a a take on that and it, that, that didn't really come through though 
as I say, I've, I've never felt the need to have a collective word for Doctor Who fans. I think the term Doctor Who fans works. That's how yeah. I would describe myself. I am a Doctor Who fan. Um, I've always thought that it was kind of the poor cousin to Trekkies in that yeah. Trekkies had that cool word. You know, they were Trekkies and some people thought, well, if they've got a cool word, we need a cool word. And uh, maybe there is a bit of a split there between the US and the UK. Don't know, but... Uh, yeah, it did seem to be a UK-US kind of thing. And I, I kind of felt sitting down here at the end of the world, almost like in a tennis match, just watching them lob sort of comments at each other. like you know, <laughs> yeah. One side saying, I don't see the big deal. And the other side saying, no, no, we can't be this. Oh, it's horrible. You know, Americanisms. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that way in, in a in a in a lot of things. I think we sit down here in Australia and we take the best of British and we take the the best of the US and we we don't give a bugger about the rest of it. Um, and I think maybe here too it could be the same. I'm, I don't know. After I asked it and got all these replies, I thought, oh, gee, this is a bigger topic than I actually thought it was. <laughs> it, it is also very Australian to not get worked up about something. That is true as well, actually. <laughs> so maybe so, we are in the sweet spot on that one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was just a quick one from me. No, that was very entertaining. Thank you. All right, Dave. The time has come. Season 25. Shall we discuss it? Can I start with a bit of scene setting, Rob? Yes, please. It's always a good way to start. So, season 25 came at a really interesting time, I think for fandom generally, but Australian fandom in particular. Let me, let me start by saying... The McCoy era is probably the one era that I can remember watching as a kid clearly. I have memories of the Colin Baker era and memories of the Dave era, but they are they are young kid memories, you know, images and scenes and stuff. They're not coherent in the way the McCoy mm-hmm. era was. But there was a big change when the McCoy era landed in Australia, a really fundamental change in the way that was treated by the ABC. Uh, as anybody who listens to Australian podcasts know, Traditionally, Doctor Who went out Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday in that 6 to 7 p.m. block where it was all about family viewing, you know, safe British sitcoms, Doctor Who, uh, the goodies, just just churned out while people were making dinner, eating dinner before you let into the nightly news at 7 o'clock and then you had, in inverted commas, adult programming. It was the family slot. With the McCoy era, though, that changed and Doctor Who was moved to a 5.30 slot which put it in the middle of basically a, a magazine-type show called The Afternoon Show, which was an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, of not kids' programming, but, but teen programming, very much mm. young adult programming. It was basically aimed for the kids are home from school, the parents aren't home from work yet, put them in front of the telly. So instead of being paired with family sitcoms and classics, now the show was being paired with things like The Ghost of Motley Hall, or Press Gang, or The Mysterious Cities of Gold, or You Can't Do That on Television. That's right. a, a, much, a much different demographic, and there was a real feeling that Doctor Who had gone downhill now, and that you know you had uh, you know, a, a sort of a up-and-coming, maybe having a bit of a trial on TV radio presenter like James Valentine and Michael Dunn producing them. This wasn't being done seriously. The other thing, of course, was that season 24 landed so badly. Yeah. Uh, do you do you want to do you want to tell us about how you remember season twenty four and the McCoy years sort of landing at that early stage, Rob? Well, initially it landed for me on on tapes coming over from the UK because season twenty four wasn't shown here in in any way sort of quickly after the UK, so it was up to going into uh, Sydney University to Doctor Who Club of Australia uh, parties 
as they were called, and watching tapes there in uh, university lecture rooms on the uh, TV monitors there. So that's where I saw season 24 originally, surrounded by fans, uh, some of whom really liked what they were seeing, others just completely shocked and stunned by what they were seeing. And then, though, it by the time it came around onto television, well, to me it was old hat, but I think to people who hadn't been going to these Doctor Who club parties, because let's face it, that's a fairly small niche of people. <laughs> yeah, 30 or 40 people, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, it was, I think, a, a shock for the general TV public. McCoy was a sort of a clowning sort of doctor. The, the show seemed a bit childish, and it was in that childish slot, which is where I think you've set up that, conversation for us to have that it was just in a completely different place to where it had been in the past even as recently as trial of a time lord yeah and and i think that season 24 has to some extent been redeemed people can see what the production team was trying to do they can see where it was heading there are some very good story concepts in there but i think it would be tough to argue it was clearly rushed into production it clearly didn't have the script work it had needed McCoy certainly did not have the time to develop his character in 14 episodes and it looked cheap it just looked phenomenally cheap yeah agree so where we were fortunate in Australia is that as you said season 24 was so far delayed that when it came out and everybody was sort of working their way through that and like oh Paradise Towers that that looked a bit shoddy and Mm. Delta and the Bannerman that's just childish Dragonfire here, not too bad, but all in all, this is a bit cheap and nasty. This new Ace character looked good. But we then got, the next day, Remembrance of the Daleks Part 1. We did. We actually had Season 24 end on a really high note, and suddenly, well, let's, we'll talk about Remembrance of the Daleks in a moment and, and that transition, but we did get that story at the very end of Season 24. They then had a shorter break than usual, and then we got it again and the whole of Season 25. Although, as I'll discuss as we get into it, I did see a couple of those early at the local club here. Uh, anything mm. you want to add on, on that before we actually go into the stories, Rob? Yes, Dave, I do want to tell my time-honoured story of being on the afternoon show before Remembrance came on. I have told this story before, so I'll run over it really quickly. Uh, basically, I was in the Doctor Who Club of Australia, and we, we got a little contingent together. The afternoon show said... Let's uh, do a quiz before each episode of Remembrance of the Daleks to celebrate the 25th anniversary. So I went in there and some other guys from my local club went in there. Kate Orman went in there. Um, Dallas Jones, who was the president of the club at the time, went in there. And most of us ended up in this wacky sort of quiz segment before Remembrance would air. So... For the first three episodes, there were three rounds with three people in them. And then before the fourth episode, the winner of those first three rounds, they went into a a playoff. And I wasn't in that group. Um, I've got to say, (laughs) my my group, there was myself, 13-year-old me, dressed as Davo. My mate from high school, Harvey, uh, he was 14 and he was dressed as Colin Baker. And then sitting to the side of us was this guy who must have been in his mid-30s wasn't dressed up at all, just this dishevelled old bloke. And when my mum saw the footage, she said, what's that old guy doing on TV with you kids? That's <laughs> that's weird. And naturally, he won, because we're just these kids, like in our first flush of fandom, whereas he's got like 20 years of fan knowledge up his sleeve, and he, he just blew us away uh, and ended up in the final. Yeah, I, I, rem- I remember watching those actually go to air. I, I remember a couple of the questions. There was one that was a uh, who is this question and a photo was put up of Anthony Ainley and the correct answer was Chameleon 
because he was obviously in his Planet of Fire one. I remember that one being, you know, the age of eight, I remember that being a slightly dodgy trick question. But the, the, the one that really stands out for me is where James Valentine, who was hosting it, and did not like Doctor Who. That was very clear from the presenter of this show. He was not interested in Doctor Who at all, and he particularly hated Doctor Who fans writing in to tell him what he was getting wrong. And, and that, was a, that was a recurring thing. Um, in, in fact, if you'll allow, if you allow me to, to diverge quickly, there, there was one time where they had a very a, a, a competition of sending your design of what the TARDIS should become instead of a police box. Let's modernise it. And I remember James Valentine going on the show one day and saying, "Doctor Who fans, I know why it's stuck as a police box. I know that the chameleon circuit's broken. We're just trying to have some fun. Stop <laughs> writing in telling me." Um, Oh, that's but as, fabulous. But I remember he, he asked a question, who were the two resis in Paradise Towers? And someone, it might have been Dallas, actually, said, oh, Tilda and Tabby. And James Valentine said, well, my card here says Tilda and Tibby. Mm. And the people on the show had to actually say to him, no, no, it actually is right. It is Tilda and Tabby. And it's like, <laughs> dude, this show went out last week on your program. You clearly did not watch it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, look, I, I have lots of good memories of it. I mean, it was dodgy. This they, they did the Who quiz two times. They did it the following year as well with different people. But the first year where I did it, we, we had squeaker toys as the buzzers. We were like squeezing like dog sort of chew toys, you know, that would make a noise. It was all very strange. I remember getting given the Five Doctors on VHS by James Valentine as a prize. This was off screen when we all sort of, you know, finished filming. He came around and was handing out uh, videos. I remember Kate Orman. They had a, a prop Dalek from the BBC, online from the BBC, pro-BBC Enterprises or something out here. And Kate tried to open it up because she was like, well, we can take the lid off and we can get inside. And she got told off. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we didn't get inside the Dalek, unfortunately. So I have all these strange sort of memories of it. But yeah, look, I was I was 13, I was in love with the show, I was way into fandom, I was dressing up as Davo. But what is interesting, and this is pertinent to Australian fandom and, and people watching Doctor Who overall, is it didn't seem that big a deal outside of that. And I only remembered this part this afternoon, when I was making a few notes for the show, and that's that my maths teacher, Mr. Hogan, had recorded the afternoon show thing with me on it. And in class, in math, he said, oh, I've got a video I'm going to show you people. And he put it on and it was like me on TV dressed as Davo answering <laughs> Doctor Who questions. And I seem to recall the kids were pretty nonplussed and some didn't even really understand what was going on. I mean, this is me on TV. This surely should have been a big deal, but apparently not. And I think Doctor Who was a bit like that here at the end of the 80s. It wasn't the cultural phenomenon that every kid would watch. You know, that had happened 10 years earlier. That's like a 1978 kind of thing. By 1988, yeah, my, kids at my school were showing me on TV dressed as Davo and they just had no idea what I was doing. No, as, as I say, I was eight, so getting at the end of year two when season 24 and the start of season 25 was shown here. And I reckon there was maybe one, maybe two other kids in my class who watched Doctor Who. It just was irrelevant. There you go. So... Before we dive into the stories particularly, I, th I think we should have a bit of a look at Season 25. And, and I think the thing that stands out for me is Season 24, having been rushed into production 
through the fault of nobody other than BBC management, who told JNT, you're not going to be back next year, go away on holiday. He comes back, oh, Doctor Who's back, you've got three weeks to cast a doctor, find four <laughs> scriptwriters, find four directors, find a script editor. Like, you know, yep. that is not JNT's fault. We, that, 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 that's, that's very, very clear. So that, that is a rush season. It, it's, got, it's got its gems, but it is a rush season. Season 25, though, feels like what a new debut season for, doc- for a Doctor should feel like. McCoy suddenly knows what he wants to do with the Doctor. The companion suddenly is, is working for the Doctor. I'm sure we'll talk about Ace. Andrew Cartmore clearly has had the time to actually find the writers he wants to work with and work with them on developing stories and, and doing those extra polishes of the scripts to make them good. And it feels like there's money there now. Not a lot. But compared to season 24 and, frankly, even Trial of a Time Lord, it looks like there's money there now. Agree with all of that. And, I mean, you, you brought up Andrew Cartmel, and I think he looms large behind all of this. Yes. Just new ideas from him is, is just so important for this era. And when we sort of swing into what he can really do in his second and third seasons, it's really quite amazing stuff. I do want to bring up something, though, which I think is really fascinating, uh, which I I read recently and I I tucked it away in my memory. And I think Andrew Cartmel is, we can both agree, a different sort of person to Eric Saywood. Would you agree? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They they approach their craft in very different ways. Absolutely. And, And so by the time season 25 came around, his feet were under the desk, his mates were writing all the stories, and he was going to do whatever he pleased, which included bringing more social issues to Doctor Who, which might sound strange because Doctor Who's always had social issues, but I think Cartmel had even more of a social conscience than past script editors. And also, this is what I want to talk about in particular, black representation. Because on the face of it, Dave, this seems like a good thing. I mean, good grief, Hollywood is still crying out for black representation in some areas, you know, more than 30 years after, you know, season 25 of Doctor Who. But when you start to scratch the surface it's a bit mm. first we have the guy in the cafe doing the late night shift it's not harry it's harry's mate because harry's gone off to have the the, the twins uh with it's, his it's, wife. Ge- it's, Ge- it's jeffrey from um fresh prince of bel-air is it really i'm pretty sure it is yeah good god well that wasn't going to be my point <laughs> my point is that he tells the doctor how his grandfather was a slave and he was sold in kingston otherwise he'd be an african and and that's quite interesting and realistic but then you fast forward to the next story which is the happiness patrol and the only black guy in the show is the guy who of course can play the blues on his harmonica then we get to silver nemesis and they jam the cyberman with jazz which is obviously an african-american form of music and courtney pine is in the episode then we get to the greatest show in the galaxy, and oh great, we've got a black guy on the cast, and he's the rapping ringmaster. Now <laughs> you line all of these up, and it starts to look very stereotypical. Compare it—you'll appreciate this. Compare it to say Earl Cameron playing Williams in the Tenth Planet. There's a yeah. black man in Doctor Who, and he doesn't rely on playing the blues or jazz. He doesn't rap. He's not a slave. It's actually very progressive, given there were no black astronauts at the time, for a 1966 episode to say, here's the future, and look, here's a black astronaut. And I think we did get black astronauts around 1983, so Doctor Who was quite um, quite good at predicting the future. 
All of that said, though, I think what he's doing is heartfelt. I think it's very important. I don't think he'd want to stereotype people in a million years. Yet you line up these four episodes, these four shows together from season 25, and it's like, oh, that looks a bit stereotyping. That's that's odd. I think today it'd get smashed on Twitter, big time. You're probably right about that last point. Um, and let me just say quickly, I've got the article in front of me, and Joseph Marcel definitely was in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm not wrong about that. Uh-huh. Look, what you're saying is obviously correct. I think there's a little bit of coincidentalness about it in that I suspect that Andrew Cartmell was a jazz fan and therefore he's thrown a lot of jazz in there. And it's ended up being that the, 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 those two intents have, have kind of crossed over. Um, you know, Earl Sigma, yes, he does play the blues, but he's also a medical student and he's a very competent sort of person and the, the fact that he's black is actually irrelevant to his character the fact that the ringmaster is black okay he gets the lame rap but i suspect that's more about the circus being lame than about him being black maybe i'm looking for excuses i don't know but mm. i guess given the absolute low bar that doctor who is coming off in the early 80s in terms of um, minority representation yet yes points for going in the right direction Oh, yeah, and, and I do want to emphasise that. I don't think Cartmel is doing anything but doing a very heartfelt thing, which I think is very good. I just feel that you get four black actors in four stories and they're all doing, quotation marks, black things, rather than, say, Earl Cameron being an astronaut or, you know, whatever. But yeah, look, that, look, that, that's you, just the yeah, way I see it. Yeah, you, you're not wrong, and I mean, you know, without knowing what was in different people's minds, you can't judge. You're right to point it out, and... It is better than it was, not as good as it could have been. Um, mm. The other thing I just want to touch on as well, and you, you mentioned it there a bit there, Rob, is the writers that are coming into this season. One thing that Andrew Cartmell does do that a lot of script editors before him have struggled to do, frankly, is to bring a whole new cadre of writers onto the show. And they're all, for the most part, those young, up-and-thrusting writers bursting with new ideas, wanting to change the world, wanting to make a difference, not necessarily knowing their craft all that well. Mm. Um, and, and many of them will, will admit that now. Um, you, you listen to the commentary with Andrew Carmel and Ben Aronovich on Battlefield, and both of them basically say, you know, with 25 years of hindsight as writers, they can see all the things they did wrong structurally and technically in, in their writing for Doctor Who now. Or yeah. Doctor Who as it was then, if you know what I mean. And, and they're very open about that. But it still brings a freshness to these last couple of years that just hasn't been there for quite a while. And, and that's a really, really cool thing. And I'll, I want to highlight the writers as we go through these stories. Absolutely. And I'll just say for Aronovich, this was his first TV script, full stop. First! <laughs> Yeah, so look, look, that's absolutely amazing. And maybe let's use that to segue into Remembrance of the Daleks, which, as yes. we say, we saw, we saw twice right at the end of Dragonfire, which was very, very cool. Yes. Instantly, with that story, this season feels like something special and like a big step up. It starts with what is almost a unique thing for Doctor Who, which is a pre-credits cold open of a spaceship moving into orbit over the planet Earth before the credits. Now, that just says to you, this is going to be big. This is going to be a bit special. 
almost within the first couple of minutes, you get things like there's a Dalek. Like, like there's none of this, I oh, will hold the Daleks back for the first cliffhanger. No, you get in, it's called Remembrance of the Daleks. In five minutes, you've got a Dalek. You've got a Dalek's point of view with the cool computer graphics. You've got that moving laser beam with the, mm-hmm. the skeleton effect, which, like, for anybody who wasn't there in 1988, the Dalek point of view and that gun effect, that, that, that laser effect, that skeleton effect, that was a bloody big deal. Oh, yeah. It, it still looks good today, Dave. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does. It does. It's, it, it was such a step up from what had gone before. And suddenly, we've got action. We've got characters. We've got a cast that is, you know, pretty impressive. You know, Pamela Salem and Simon Williams are there right from the get go. Um, you've got Dursley McClendon, who looks very, very good in the role, and you know, he's a really good character. Within ten minutes of that story. You've got excitement, adventure, and really wild things happening, and it looks pretty cool. And that that was just incredible from from a first time writer. And a quick shout out too to Tip Tipping, the uh, the stunt guy, who who actually died not long after this was made. I don't think in a in a parachute accident. Yeah, nineteen ninety, I reckon he died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years. Uh, tip tipping the way he throws himself back into that corrugated iron. Even that looks like a, a, a stunt that wouldn't have been done on Doctor Who a year or two earlier, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Even though they've had stuntmen on the show before. Action by Havoc. I get all of that. They they were just really just running around shooting guns a lot of the time, not sort of throwing themselves bodily into corrugated iron fences. Absolutely. You've got Ace using a rocket launcher. The, the episode builds to a big climax where a Dalek climbs the stairs. And, and, and you know, to, to, to outdo that, the episode three cliffhanger... An entire bloody Dalek shuttlecraft lands in a school playground. They built a Dalek shuttlecraft and lowered it into a school playground. I don't know whether they just had more money or they were just spending it better, but this looks good. Do you want me to spoil that for you in a story sense? Sure. The shuttlecraft has clearly landed there before because the scorch marks are on the ground and the doctor goes over and examines them. Yes. When it lands, it blows out all the windows in the school. Did that not happen the first time? <laughs> or did it happen and they repaired all the windows and not realising what did it? And then well, well, it lands again. Well, they've got the the headmaster under their control, so he, he would have just said it was gangs or something, I guess. Ah, I see. Okay. Probably hippies. <laughs> a proper, pro- oh, it's a bit early for hippies. Teddy boys. I don't know. I'm sure, that, I'm sure someone was protesting something in 1963, surely. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah yeah okay fair enough dave when i saw this i i couldn't believe what i was seeing and i i still can't fully believe it now because it looks nothing like the season before it or even the seasons before it, it it's it's incredible it's like how did how did this happen how are you guys capable of this you've given us time flight you've given us time lash even when you had money you gave us the two doctors why 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 how 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 you know <laughs> but the stink of it is that people had started giving up on doctor who some in davo's era some in collins era quite a few after sylvester's first season and sure new fans emerge every year to sort of help pad the numbers but there was this net effect i think of older fans who probably would have quite enjoyed seeing this and they didn't see it and it was perhaps some time before word of mouth got to them and maybe they got the vhs or something Maybe there are still fans who gave up on Doctor Who in the mid-80s and still haven't seen this because they just gave up. I don't know. A combination of giving up but also the time slot. If you're somebody who's 
just finished school, or even if you're in the last couple of years of school, 5.30 is not a time you're usually home to watch television. You know, I know a lot of friends who had sort of grown up with the show and by this stage they did finish school and then their first job and they didn't get home till six o'clock so they weren't watching Doctor Who, which mm. which is a shame. Um, another memory of mine watching this is I was convinced, I was absolutely convinced that the creature with the strange voice in the corner of Ratcliffe's thing, I was absolutely certain that was Davros. Yes. I was blown away when it turned out to not be Davros but to be the little schoolgirl. And then... Davros turns up where you didn't expect him in the Emperor shell. Yeah, in the Emperor shell. So um, that 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 look look. It was probably incredibly obvious which was which to an adult watching that, but as an eight year old, that bait and switch completely worked for me. I can tell we're both very excited by this, but I, I will throw up a negative, Dave. Sure. The whole blowing up of Scaro thing doesn't sit well with me. Now, as a kid. I thought, oh, this is fabulous, this is great, this doctor, he's not a pussy, he fights these Daleks, you know, normally, and it's the space equivalent of, like, people having a little slap fight for 30 seconds and then running away. But this was like, holy hell, he's he's blown up Scaro, doesn't he blow up the whole system it's in or something? It's like, Jesus Christ, this is amazing. But as I've gotten older, I guess I'm not wowed when it's like, oh, we're going to blow up the Starship Enterprise for the 10th time, or... Or, oh, we're going to destroy Gallifrey again on New Who, you know, to bring an example closer to home. I look at these destroying big things as being a bit cheap in stories now. And so I look at destroying Scarrow as possibly the only thing in this story that gives me a bit of pause. You know, it just seems a little out of character for the Doctor, given the way he has dealt with the Daleks in the past. It's very interesting because it's very clear the production team, and particularly the writer is treating the show with a certain amount of reverence. You get things like the little reference to the French Revolution book that Susan had in An Unearthly Child, or yeah. the mention, you know, oh, but you said the Doctor was an old geezer with white hair. You know, you get all those lovely little bits that are, are, are perfectly dropped in. They're not alienating a casual audience, but they're wonderful for a fan. So there's a reverence to the show there. But there is also this kind of contra attempt to make a mark on the show mm. blowing up Scarrow here uh, Ben Aronovich wanted to kill the Brigadier in Battlefield next season in the end he pulled back from it but but there is that kind of young enthusiasm to, to make a mark and this is the best way they know how to and I do wonder if you said to Carmel and Aronovich 20 years later would you change the ending I wonder if they perhaps would with a bit more hindsight and experience know that you don't have to blow everything up at the end to make an impact I'd like to think they would. I'd like to think they could do something cleverer than just, you know, oh, a big explosion, you know. Uh, final point from me, and that is that it is very, very clear here the message that Cartmel and the team want to push in that you have the Daleks overtly linked to the Nazis, you have a neo-Nazi white supremacist group that are clearly the bad guys, you know, to, to the point of Mike Smith, who has been a romantic interest for Ace, who has been an identification character in some ways for the audience. You know, he's been a good guy. Suddenly he's turning around and doing the whole, you know, you, you've got to get rid of the others so your own can have a fair go. Mm. Um, you've got the scene where Ace finds the no-coloured sign in the window of his mum's house. Again, as a kid, you kind of get the vibe of it, which is the right way for it to be done. As an adult, you get exactly what they're doing. And, and I think it strikes that balance of 
giving you a tone without really ramming at home. And, and beyond everything, it kind of doesn't matter in some ways. Well, I suppose it, it does matter, but, but regardless of whether the message is important to you or not, you've got lots and lots and lots of Daleks blowing a lot of stuff up. Mm. My final comment will be, I think Aronovich actually wanted to go further. I have read that Rachel was, I think, going to originally be like a Dr. Israel. It was going to be that on the nose, you know, yeah, right, showing, the, right. showing the contrast. But they pulled back from that, so it was going to go even further at one stage. Speaking of things that were going to go even further at one stage... Yes. Are we going to talk about the Happiness Patrol? Dave, as a kid, I absolutely hated this. It just felt so try-hard... The city looked like a set. It had that stupid buggy thing that goes about two kilometres an hour, even though they've had things like that in, in, in recent seasons and they've been shown to just to look stupid on screen, yet they've still got one. Painting the TARDIS pink, I thought, was genuine heresy. Uh, the Happiness Patrol concept seemed very stupid to me. This concept of being killed for, for just a moment's unhappiness in some cases, you know, decided upon in a really arbitrary kind of way. That seemed very unrealistic. When I got older, though, I could see past the literal. I could see the allegory, the homages. I enjoyed it a lot more. I still don't think it's perfect by any means, but it's this odd little thing. And I think the three-part nature makes it just zip along and, you know, an end before it gets too much into, you know, oh, let's just run up and down corridors to pad out an episode. I think it's okay. There's my opening gambit. I agree with a lot of what you've said. I quite liked it as a kid. I, I didn't love it, but I appreciated it for being the fun little story that it was. Uh, I I liked the Candyman, again, as a fun kind of villain. But yet, like you, both as I've grown older and as I've seen it many more times... I have come to appreciate it on a different level. Um, the Candyman goes from being sort of a kind of fun concept to actually just being really fun and cool. And, and that moment when he picks up the phone, Candyman, you know, yes. <laughs> I just crack up every time I see that. I don't know why. Is it the style of phone, maybe? Because it's, it's an old-fashioned phone. phone. It's the way he does it. The way he's just so grumpy at everybody. I really do like the Candyman. I think he's a wonderful creation. But you're right. When you see what the story's trying to say, and that is actually trying to say, and we'll get to that in a moment, I think, and you realise that it is simply a form of oppression. And although the concept of being executed for being sad seems on the face of it to be a silly one, when you realise that all of the tools of oppression are fundamentally ridiculous, except for mm. the fact that they're deadly... You, you get that and you see the superficiality of it. The first time anybody, I think, sees the, the costume and makeup and the wigs of the Happiness Patrol themselves, you know, it, it seems almost puerile. But when you realise that's part of the fakeness and the veneer of the society and the, the oppression of the society, it, it becomes really clever. But you need to watch it on multiple occasions to really appreciate what it's doing. I think that's brought home where... I don't know which member of the Happiness Patrol it is, but she's got the rifle. But it looks like something out of Willy Wonka's factory. It looks like something you'd, you know, squirt, I don't know, vanilla icing onto cupcakes with. And Ace says, why can't you get a real gun? And then she turns around and, and blows out a streetlight with it. And Ace yeah. is like, oh, Gordon Bennett or something, um, appropriately Ace-like. I, I guess that's showing that, yeah, they, they're carrying these weird, odd-looking weapons, but they are actually deadly and they will kill you. Yeah, so look, let's 
talk then about the roots of the story. Uh, it's written by Graham Curry. It's the only story that he does for Doctor Who, brought in by Andrew Cartmell. When he and Andrew Cartmell, and I think this is common knowledge, when they, they sat down to work through the story, they said, this is the one that's going to take down Margaret Thatcher. Um, at this stage, she'd been Prime Minister of the UK for nine years. Uh, she'd just won her third election in 1987. And they said, this is going to be a piece of satire that's going to take down Margaret Thatcher. Uh, they take it to John Nathan Turner, who just, you know, has a mini stroke when he hears this. And, and you know, sort of says to them, you know, guys, the BBC wants nothing more than to get us off the air. You want to do a program attacking the government. Mm. That's the that's all the excuse they'll need to take us off air. That's not what we do. Can you take all the Thatcher stuff out? So so they do. Um, I think there's a couple of hints in there. I I kind of wonder whether the sugar factories that they they talk about were going to have a bigger role and be um, analogous to the coal mines, for example. I I mm-hmm. think that might be a hint of it there. But but they take it all out. Sheila Hancock is then cast to play Helen A. and says. This is an evil woman running a planet. She reminds me of Margaret Thatcher. I'm going to do it as Margaret Thatcher. So, so the satire in the portrayal is there. Yes, but I don't think that as a as a as a takedown of Thatcherism, it, it, it really works. What Terra Alpha is is far more like a a Pinochet regime in Chile or the Ceausescu mm. regime in Romania, which was going to be overthrown about twelve months after this. Uh, when now it was it was a you know horrific regime that was nearing the end of its life you know a regime like those ones in the eighties where dissidents just disappeared yeah and you know look like Thatcher don't like Thatcher I'm, you know we can have that argument another time she was not a dictator who disappeared her people in the way that a, a Pinochet or a Ceausescu or a Hussein or, or any number of those sort of eighties dictators would have done so I think that. As a, as a takedown of oppression, this is actually a far more important work than just a kind of fun satire of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and that's what I wanted to say. Um, but to a, to a sort of a lighter tone, this is possibly the best cast story of at least the McCoy years, probably the anything sort of in the late 80s, really. I mean, Sheila Hancock, Ronald Fraser, Georgina Hale, Harold Innocent, Leslie Dunlop... Uh, John Normington. I mean, that is an incredible cast of name actors. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking about Remembrance having a good cast, but I think, yeah, I think this would pip it for sure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I mean, they're, they're they're all you know big name actors. I mean, Leslie Dunlop, she was a big sitcom actor at the time and went on to some um, even bigger work as well off the back of this. Mm. One thing I want to mention: the killing of the guy with is it strawberry fondant always yes. seemed very shocking to me in general because it seems like oh look he's he's drowned in this tube and then the body flops out like a dead fish and isn't that terrible you know but then later i realized this is actually meant to be hot this is meant to be like scalding hot strawberry fondant so this guy's not only drowned he's been scalded by that as well and it's like this is kids television and and again this is going out on the abc at 5:30 in the afternoon Wow, you know, the more you dig, the more it's like, oh, there's a lot more going on here than it first seems. It, it, it is. It's one of those things that I think as you age, your, your view of it changes. Like as a kid, you sort of go, oh, wow, that's a cool, gruesome death. 
then you sort of go, wow, that's actually really quite nasty. And then you kind of really appreciate the kind of um, the metatextual nature of it and, and, and the, the references to it, um, mm-hmm. and even just the black humour to it that I think, you know, comes with age. I love that little exchange where the Candyman's talking to the Doctor about, you know, sweets that are so powerful that the human body isn't capable of understanding the pleasure of them. And it goes on and he says, just tell me what I'm trying to say, Gilbert. He makes sweets that kill people. <laughs> you know, it's just such a wonderful line. And you've got Harold Anderson delivering it. I mean, it's just really, really good. It's it's a fun story. Uh, it's probably the cheapest looking of them for this season. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and that was one of the things that, again, annoyed me as a kid. Like, I can't believe this is a town or a city. This is a set. Like, they filmed a panto or something. What? This is ridiculous. But then, when you watch it, as again as an adult you can appreciate that sort of fake look to it or in the candy kitchen when there's all those shadows of the cogs turning and things like that and it takes on that more sort of german expressionist sort of theater of the 1920s or something it's like oh wow that's very good yeah it is it is the cheap studio one and i think that if it was made today it probably would look you know more expensive but similar but there would be that line or that sort of comment about oh look we're in a planetary dome and you know they'll, they'll probably have something like they had in the impossible planet you know look out the window there there's there's the space the atmosphere can't be even you know. so so that sort of contextualizing it that this is a colony that's sort of all inside mm. and i think that's how they'll do it now yeah i agree silver demesis rub yes do you want to lead us on this one I saw Silver Nemesis go out live. It wasn't when I saw it at the club early. Mm-hmm. A little, little bit of sort of context and a bit of backstory in here. Um, about a year after The Curse of Fenric came out, it famously got a release on VHS where they put about another 10 or 15 minutes of footage into the story. And suddenly Curse of Fenric went from being, that was a really well-made story, but I had no idea what it was about, to, hey, it suddenly all makes sense. This yes. is awesome. <laughs> and then about six months later, they said, oh, we're going to do the same thing with Silver Nemesis. And I remember a lot of fans around the club got very excited. They thought, finally, this is actually going to, we're going to work out what they were trying to do and it's going to all make sense. And then the extended version of Silver Nemesis came out and everyone said, no, it still doesn't make sense. <laughs> and that's that's the context in which I want to open the discussion. Rob, what do you think? Oh, there are so many things to say about this, Dave. Gosh, where will I start? I've got two big points to start with. I'll start with this one. I think comedy shoots this one in the foot the most because we have a plot that, you know, I'm, I'm not being profound to say it's not dissimilar to Remembrance in some ways. And yes, Cartmel should have been dragged over coals for that. You know, how can you not notice that the Doctor has some device from ye olde times that he's going to shoot up into space and destroy one of his biggest enemies with? It's, it's similar in so many ways. Yet... It has all this comedy stuff too, like the skinheads and Mrs. Remington and the Queen. And, you know, it, it, it buggers up a story which is already a little shaky in terms of what exactly is meant to be happening and what's the Doctor's motivation. It seems to change from episode to episode. I'll say, Remembrance has humour too, but I, I think it's done so much better and doesn't stop the story from being taken seriously than, than the humour here does. Like, in Remembrance, I think of that scene where they drive through the dark uh, underpass and the Doctor and Sophie, uh, or Sylvester and Sophie, change seats. And there's this very surprised <laughs> look on her face. It's yes, this nice yes. visual gag, and that's yes. fine. But in this, you have the skinheads talking about social workers and, and ah, 
and Mrs. Remington, you know, being played by this American who no one's ever heard of. Except J&T. <laughs> except J&T. And that was meant to be a big deal. Oh, no, no, no. It, the comedy kills it in places. And I know the story's not up to snuff either. I'm going to invert what you're saying there, Rob. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the comedy saves it. Really? I, I think that this is a story that doesn't quite work. It has it has too many disparate elements that don't quite work out. Lady Painfort on her own would be an amazing villain. She, she, she doesn't quite get what she deserves and gets a bit ranty at the end. Uh, the Cybermen are very much underdone. It's cool to see them. They get some good moments, but they're underdone. The, the Nazis, again, you know, a, a whole story with Deflores would have been quite cool, but he sort of turns up, says a few Nazi things, and by sort of part three, he's vanished, particularly in the non-extended version. It is a bit of a mess. It is a bit lightweight. So putting the comedy in there means that if you kind of just accept this is going to be a bit silly and a bit fun, you can enjoy this story. And I think if it was trying to do this story in a po-faced manner, it actually would be really, really bad. But but at least there's a sense of lighthearted fun in this one that carries, well, certainly carries me through. Oh, look, I, I do enjoy some of the comedy. I'd say most of the Lady Paintfort comedy is actually my favourite sort of stuff. Uh, just some of her asides to Richard, you know, I think are very, very funny. Yes. But yeah, there's there's other bits that I just, uh, just don't think they're needed. The other big point I was going to make, uh, you've already mentioned the Nazis. I was very surprised by this as a kid because it does start with all that Nazi stuff like in Deflora's office and he's got all the, the, the gear on his table, all the paraphernalia. And I was like, gosh, you can't show Nazis in a kid's show. It, it, it felt very weird to me. Right. It also felt very brave and daring that Doctor Who was doing this. There, there was part of me as a 13-year-old back in 1988 that felt that this was really weird that Doctor Who would be doing this. You know, So I found it interesting. As a Cyberman fan, though, I'll also mention I didn't wasn't too pleased with how they came across. You know, they were still just lumbering around and slow and a bit stupid. And I guess they're easier to direct when they're like that. There's a few moments of menace, like when they march en masse at the Nazis and they're firing their guns and stuff. But generally, it, mm, I guess it's all undercut by the gold stuff as well, which we haven't mentioned. Yeah, I, I think that the arrival of the Cybermen is very cool. That that cliffhanger is really well done. Um, there are, again, a lot of them. They, they look good, I think. You know, they've got big costumes, you know, that, that classic 80 Simon costume. Um, there are, as I say, a lot of them. They're doing a lot of shooting. They get into a good fight with the Nazis. That, that stuff, as you said, is quite good. Probably like all the elements in the story, it feels as though the writer doesn't quite know what to do with them mm. in the end. Yeah. And again, it's it's the more action-oriented scenes because I'll tell you, Dave, there's, there's a scene in this story that I think, despite what I've just said about this story overall, is better than the Dalek fight at Coal Hill School with uh, Ace versus the Daleks. And it's when the Cybermen are after Ace while the Doctor's faffing around with Nemesis. Mm. There's this tremendous long shot and you see Sophie running like full tilt, you know, Tom Cruise style. She's bolting and these explosions are going off very, very close to her. And it just looks amazing. And then soon after she's stalking the Cyberman with her slingshot, that's quite realistic, like the way she uses the angles of the stairwell to sort of get them before they get her. And I think that whole segment's great, you know? And it ends with that standoff where she's only got one coin and three Cybermen. It's like this sort of Mexican standoff. 
I think it's really good. Yeah, that that use of the outdoor filming environment, and and, and this is the, the the corollary of doing the whole of the Happiness Patrol indoors, is they get to do the whole of the Silver Nemesis outdoors, and, and, and it does look good. They do make great use of those those scenes and those shots. Um, the one that I was going to highlight is the shot of Ace on the gantry above the TARDIS and the Nemesis and everything, where it it looks like she's way up high. And um, if you talk to Sophie Aldred about it, it's very clear that. Um, occupational health and safety would not remotely have allowed her to do that these days because it was this rusty old gantry quite a way up. But but yeah, there's, there's some great filming in here. There's an energy to this one that I really like. It, it's fun. It just doesn't know what to do with all the elements once they're introduced. Part one's really good. You know, I watched the part one the other night for the podcast and all the introduction of all these elements building up to that cliffhanger with the Cybermen and, and the battle at the start of part two is really good. It's after that that you just go, they, they, they didn't have an ending for this when they wrote it, did they? I know we haven't got to the next story, but is this the week one of the season? Objectively, I think it is. Okay. It's not my least favourite. Okay. Shall we get on to the final one, The Greatest Show in the Galaxy? Yeah, lead, lead us off, Rob. Alrighty. Again, thinking back to being a kid, because this is when I originally saw it, I didn't think there was much to this at all. I mean, it was good to have the location shooting. It made the planet feel realistic. And, of course, the location shooting in the real circus tent because of the B- the asbestos at the BBC, that made it look pretty good inside the tent as well. It looks a little cheap, though, when we get to the actual dark circus and everything looks like basically styrofoam because <laughs> we know it's got to all fall apart at the end, so it needs to be styrofoam. But, again... Like the Happiness Patrol, as an adult, I can sort of let that go and just immerse in the story. And it's a, it's an interesting little drama. I mean, the chief clown is scary and weird. The conductor's an odd-looking thing. And when uh, Kablam came out, I thought there was an instant sort of recognition between the Kablam man and, and the conductor in this story. <laughs> very similar yep. look. Um, yep. Mags and the captain are very memorable. There are episodes of New Who that go by and I forget half the characters and the other half I don't know their names. But here, it's like watching, I don't know, a big franchise movie or something. I seem to know all the characters and remember them. Now, is it because they're memorable or is it because I watched it when I was a kid and my brain was more uh, plastic or elastic or whatever the expression is? I don't know. But it just feels more memorable than a lot of Doctor Who does to me, uh, the characters here. Interesting. So this was a story that I did see at the Doctor Who Club. So I saw it with a bunch of fans at a hall right the way through, you know, the four episodes, one after the other. As an eight-year-old, my main memory of this was being slightly bored. Okay. It's it's sort of lots of people driving around deserts. It's, it's lots of people talking at each other. It's lots of people doing strange and weird things. And, and as an eight-year-old, that, that's not what I wanted. As an adult... I realise now that some of that stuff that's two people talking to each other is is quite witty. Some of it's quite profound. Some of it's quite poignant. There are scenes in this that I am a big fan of. Stuff with the Chief Clown, as you've said, he's an an amazing villain. He's really well done. Um, Some of that stuff early on with uh, Flower Child and then later on with Deadbeat and with Bellboy, that, that actually is quite poignant and it's quite well done. That said, though, this feels like less than the sum of its parts for me. This is one of those Doctor Who stories that I know a lot of fans adore and I know how much they love it. And and I have tried many times to see this through their eyes and it just doesn't land for me. I 
don't quite know why it does for some and not for me, but it doesn't. I like a lot of the pieces, I stress that. It doesn't gel as a story for me. Do you like Captain Cook? No. No? And, and, and let me say, I have never fa- I have never understood the deal around T.P. McKenna. Uh, he turns up in an episode of Blake 7 and he's boring. He turns up in an episode of Rumpole and he's annoying. And he turns up here and he's just talking nonsense. And I, I kind of see what they may be trying to do, but he's just a boring, unpleasant character. And, and T.P. McKenna has never, as an actor, ever engaged me. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. Does he does he does he work for you? As as a character, I I thought you know the the concept of I mean what does he look like? What sort of era? It's not a uh, Edwardian. It's probably earlier than that. It's probably, yeah, the uh, Victorian Victorian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got that sort of vibe, but he's going around the galaxy. I mean, I I find that sort of a, a really marvelous sort of image. The same as you know, I like to think of the Doctor as being like a nineteenth century gentleman. You know, but at the controls of the TARDIS. I, I like that kind of look. You know, as, a, as an actor, maybe I don't have an opinion on him, but as, as a character, I found that interesting. I, I do wonder whether there are occasions in this script, which is written by Stephen Wyatt, we should point out, uh, who's back after doing Paradise Towers, mm-hmm. which, which is a story I actually really do enjoy. And for, for all its production faults, I really like the story of Paradise Towers. I think on this occasion, Wyatt is perhaps on occasion being a bit too clever by half. I suspect that Captain Cook is meant to be this sort of meta take on the Doctor, you know, this this old guy with lots of stories who travels around with a young girl for no apparent reason doing mm-hmm. strange things. Like, like it's meant to be a clever take on the Doctor, but there's, I, I don't get why and what the point is. Um, in, in the same way that the whiz kid is presumably meant to be a, a riff on fanatics and devoted fans, not necessarily of Doctor Who per se, you know, but with all those lines about, you know, I obviously never saw it in the old days, but I know it was much better then. Yeah. You know, all, all those sort of things. Like, like, I get what they're trying to do. I just think they're being a bit too clever. And, and it doesn't land for me. But, but, but again, I totally get why if that clicks for you, it would absolutely land for you. But, but yeah, lots of great visuals. Um, the, the bus conductor as well, that was another thing. That, that was one thing as a kid that I do remember sort of being quite creepy and quite chilling. There's lots of good stuff in here. Oh, I think there is. You know, again, as a kid, I didn't think there was much to it. It got better as an adult. I still don't think it's the best of this season, but it seems like I like it a little bit more than you. Do you think it goes up or down when they actually get to the Gods of Ragnarok in part four? Now, I agree that it obviously looks cheap and it's clearly hurt by the fact that they had to film it in a car park. And whilst that benefits where they do the stuff inside the tent, because, hey, it's a real tent now, mm. clearly trying to do that in a car park rather than on a soundstage was not ideal and it doesn't quite work. But do the gods of Ragnarok work for you? No. Yeah, me either. I think that's where the story really falls down. And I certainly remember a lot of fans at the time saying, you know what, it's not the best story, but it was going along, it was kind of ticking along. I liked it. I liked the chief clown. The family was creepy. I was wondering what was going on. Then they got to the gods of Ragnarok and I'm like, huh? Yeah, the stakes just get too big for what it, is yeah uh if i can just say it as simply as that it just it just seems ridiculous that we go from this weird psychic circus to gods you know all-powerful gods you know watching people juggle and things and it's like oh really <laughs> yeah it, it perhaps lacks 
the money to do epic I, th- I think again if this was done as a new series story you could imagine there being a lot more members of the psychic circus you know not necessarily action characters but but there would be other people in the background there'll be other people coming in maybe there would be a bit more of an audience it, it just sort of never quite works that you know like there's one person in the audience at any time and and the acts and they sort of keep churning through I, I, I sound like I'm really down on this story which I'm not I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down on any story in this season, I can watch them all quite happily. I, I just think that lots of lovely bits in this don't make a coherent story uh, and don't work in the end. One thing I will say that's very positive about it, though, mm-hmm. it is really clear by this stage that McCoy has absolutely nailed the Doctor. He is really good in Remembrance of the Daleks, um, a, a big step up from where he was in Season 24. But by this time he gets to The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, he has absolutely nailed who his doctor is he's got the gravitas he's got the oomph he's got the the dark and the light he's got the fun he's got the chilling this this is perhaps one of the best performances mccoy gives i think there's a couple in the next season to better it but i think that he's a real strength in this yeah and look this was originally going to be i think second in the season it got messed around because of the asbestos thing i think they did their their location filming first, then got messed around. Yeah, um, and, and T also wanted Silver Nemesis to go out on the anniversary. That's right, and that was going to be another nice uh, advantage if they went with the uh, Happiness Patrol second. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I just thought I'd mention that as well. I think there are four good stories in here, but if I had to rank them, I would actually rank them in the order in which they're broadcast. Really? Yeah. Okay. For my personal enjoyment, I think The Greatest Show is a better written and better made story than Silver Nemesis. But, but I could enjoy Silver Nemesis more than I enjoy Greatest Show. But I, I, I watched them all. I mean, I watched them all for this podcast very, very happily. They went down very easily. Oh, they do. They really do. I was surprised, actually. There are some movies I can watch, not just the big ones like Star Wars and stuff, but there are movies like Top Gun and things where I know what dialogue is coming next because I've just seen it so many times. And I didn't think that was actually the case with this season of Doctor Who, yet... I was actually having lines of dialogue pop into my head before they were being delivered. And I thought, yeah. geez, I know this a lot better than I thought I did. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it did go down very well. Dave, I think before we summarise, we should talk about The Doctor and Ace because this is their first season together. Sophie was in Dragonfire, of course, but wasn't really the companion until the very end. What do you think about The Doctor and Ace? It's not a new or an original thought to say that the chemistry between McCoy and Aldred is far better than the chemistry between McCoy and Bonnie Langford, who who was, as we said in our episode about uh, companions that overlap two doctors, you know, she was designed to work for Colin, and I think works for Colin. She, she doesn't work for Sylvester. Mm. The relationship between them is evident right from that first part in Remembrance of the Daleks. She is a character who's given a lot to do, and I think the fact that McCoy has now found his feet as the Doctor means that he can sort of pull Sophie Aldred along with him and she's got a, a really strong established character to play off. But but the relationship and the rapport between them is natural. You you can't fake that. Oh, I agree. I've I've jotted down here, I don't think there are many better pairings in all of Doctor Who. I mean, you think of Tom and Liz, you think of John and Katie, you think of Pat and Fraser. I think Sylvester and Sophie are without doubt in that company. Uh, without any doubt at all, actually, in my mind. Pull out any other classic pairing and see if they stack up better. Colin and Nicola? No. Uh, Davo and Janet? 
uh, no, <laughs> you know, no, but both both great characters, but not a great pairing. You're right. Yeah, I mean, Hartnell did very well with Hill and Russell, but that's a different dynamic because you know it's a pair rather than just a younger mm. sort of solo companion. I'll actually go a step further, Dave, here tonight on the Doctor Who show and say I think they're possibly the best classic Doctor Who pairing, but don't get the respect they deserve because of where the show was at when they were in it. No, I, I think I think you're right. Look, look, are they the definitely the absolute number one? I mean, I I'll probably fight you on that because I think I think you got Tom and Liz in there and maybe Fraser and and, and and Pat, but but you know they're a podium finish. Yeah, I mean, Sophie is just so dynamic and action-oriented, as we've talked about here tonight. And, you know, she gets dialogue that's a bit cringe every now and then, but I think she really is the start of New Who in many ways. There's a scene, I don't know if it was Nemesis or the Happiness Patrol, might have been the Happiness Patrol, where she's just raging about something. She's really pissed off with somebody. And Sylv grabs her and he starts snarling, you know, calm down, I need you, you know, but not like mm. this, you know. And and it's a really sort of modern dialogue and acting, which I just don't imagine Tom doing with Liz or, or John doing with Katie or, you know, it, it's just really interesting. Um, I'm not describing that very well. She, it is this crossover point between different kinds of TV, I think, somehow. Look, I think that this is a very nice confluence of all the things we've been talking about. Not only is McCoy landing the role, but Carmel is writing the scripts better and Sophie is allowed to do more with what she gets. Sophie is allowed, or Ace, I should say, is allowed to have relationships. She's allowed to have crushes. She's allowed to be happy and sad. She's allowed to be um, scared at the right times, but brave at other times. Um, there's a wonderful scene in Happiness Patrol where she's there with Leslie Dunlop's character and she gets the whole little dialogue about her, you know, I can't sing, I can't dance, actually, you haven't got any any talents whatsoever. And it feels like a very real person. Mm. And and then, you know, late, later on, she gets that moment, you know, I want to make them very, very unhappy. And yes. that feels, again, like a real, a real person being upset and being angry. She gets moments, again, in, in greater show that, that are like that. Yeah, she's allowed more poignant moments than I think Janet Fielding got, than Nicola got, you know, certainly than Leela got, for example. Well, just talking about Leela, I mean, I mentioned how dynamic and action-oriented she is. You know, Leela's this warrior woman. She doesn't get half the action scenes that Sophie gets, a quarter of the action scenes that Sophie gets. You know, it's, it's pretty tame the way they used to treat a companion like her back in the day, even given her background. You know, fast forward to Ace and she's jumping through windows and being shot at and it's, it's just a whole different ball game. It's, you, can't, you can't even compare them. No, you're absolutely right. And I think you're also absolutely right that the very first seeds of what would become not just the McCoy era, but the new adventures after that and from there, the new series of Doctor Who are absolutely laid in this season. Uh, Rob, I've got to ask you, though, I've sort of said what my one, two, three, four would be. Uh, what's at least your number one, number two? Oh, it's the same as you. Remembrance first, absolutely, yep. and Happiness Patrol second, absolutely. It's it's really impressive how, I think over the last 10 years particularly, Remembrance has slowly just worked its way up in fandom and, and now sits, I think, as a pretty undisputed, genuine classic of the show. Oh, personally, I felt that way the first time I saw it. But I know what you're saying in fandom more broadly. Yes, okay. It w- it was certainly very well regarded when it came out. And I think it, for a long time it was seen as 
certainly the best of the first couple of McCoy seasons, if not the McCoy era. But but I think it, it's just sort of gone from you know being 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 very good to being no no th- this is a classic, and, and I think partly as well because fans are sometimes a bit reluctant to afford classic status to if not the whole JNT era, certainly the back end of the JNT era. Mm. And it did suffer from being part of the McCoy era. And look, I've got my faults with the McCoy era and indeed with McCoy as an actor. But this is a very well-made, well-written series to watch. And my final point on it all is that for the first time in a long time in Doctor Who, these are a set of stories that are about something. Sometimes it's just a really important vibe Sometimes it's a more direct message. Sometimes it lands well. Sometimes it's a little bit awkward. But it's Doctor Who made well, written well, and about something. For me, I think this is a good season. It's neck and neck with season 26 for me. You know, I think in season 26, you've got Battlefield as the weak link here. I think it's Silver Nemesis as the weak link. Otherwise, three other quite good stories. Look, for the budget it was made for, for the relative experience of the people making it, we mentioned Remembrance was Aronovich's first script. I, I think this season does something pretty amazing that at least seasons, uh, I don't know, 22, 23, 24 could only dream of. It's good. No, it's more than good. It's great. I have to ask, because you, you sort of alluded to it there, do you think that because Andrew Carmel was so on top of hiring the writers and getting the scripts done, suddenly J&T was allowed to go back to what he was always really, really good at, which is making the budget work? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was still um, <laughs> interfering in the background. Another one of those extras I watched, uh, Cartman was saying, you know, John had come up with this name, The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, <laughs> and said, yep. here, go and write this show. And I was like, oh, Christ, you know. So yep. he was still interfering a little. But, yes, broadly, I think it probably it did help that he had someone on his side uh, and who he felt comfortable with and who he would back and go to the the mat four as well. Yep. You know, a, a really great pairing, and, and they did amazing things in this back end of his time. Yeah, no, look, I think it's really clear that we uh, both really enjoy this season. We really did. But what did our listeners think, Dave? As I alluded to at the start of this show, we had a lot of feedback, and I think that just shows how many listeners really love this season and were engaged right into us. The first of them was Dwayne Bunny from the Sirens of Audio podcast, and he tweeted into us i'll never forget the first episode of the crappiness patrol as i used to call it especially the head shaking of james valentine after the closing credits and the sheer embarrassment i felt now in my older years i consider this to be a fantastic story yeah and i think we both concur with that very much so all right uh millie mckenzie creator of fabulous doctor who figurines uh wrote to us on facebook She says, This series has my favourite 80s story, The Happiness Patrol. I won't talk about the others. They get love and praise heaped on them, especially Remembrance. But I feel happiness is often ridiculed. I adore it. The sets are gorgeous, especially Candyman's Kitchen with the black and white decor, reminiscent of silent German expressionist films. There we go. I was talking about that earlier myself. You were, yes. And, And the streets give off vibes of 40s film noir. 
The members of the patrol are aging and their makeup is crumbling. Their smiles are forced and the skimpy pink outfits are uncomfortable. The villain is so layered she is bitter and haggard and angry with the world. She pretends to be happy and wants everyone to be happy without fully understanding what happiness truly is. She loves her pet more than anything else and her soul is utterly destroyed when he is killed. Basically, Helen A is me. <laughs> the other three stories are good. It's a solid series. Thanks, Millie. That's really good, Millie. And I'm just reminded of another one of those wonderful Helen A moments where she's uh, rewarding somebody and giving them promotion. And he says, oh, thank you very much, Mum. I'm aiming for the top. And she just looks at him. Not quite the very top, I hope. <laughs> I love it. You sounded almost like Tim Brooke Taylor then doing Margaret Thatcher. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, Dan Pym writes in to us via Twitter. One of my absolute favourites. I remember vividly the experience of sitting down and watching Remembrance as a 10-year-old. That first cliffhanger of the Dalek floating up the stairs blew my mind. Remembrance is an almost perfect story, and the first since Davo in Caves. Happiness Patrol? Great story let down by some production values. Imagine it with better, moodier lighting. Silver Nemesis is a fun romp, although poor use of the Cybermen. And it ends with another classic, The Spooky Greatest Show. Clowns are creepy. Seventh and Ace, what a great double act. Yeah, I agree with all of that as well. Uh, John Arnold tweeting to us from the underscore Arn. He says, My absolute favourite series, perfect balance of the goofiness and fun of the previous season and the darker of the next season. Three out-and-out classics, and even Silver Nemesis is a lot of fun. Very fair. Pat Howe tweets in at Patrick J. Fury. Morning, Robin Dave. Thanks for a great run of shows this year. Thank you. Thank you. I don't want to be contentious, but in relation to the McCoy era, I have wanted to ask you about this for a while. I was obsessive about Doctor Who growing up and then struggled after Tom Baker left. The hammer blow for me was the direction and acting in the McCoy period. I find the lead actor throughout to be near unwatchable. Wow. Having heard the stories discussed positively on yours and other podcasts, this rarely seems to be mentioned. I have tried watching recently, and I can see the tone and ideas are better than they have been for a while, but fail to see any appeal in the wooden and patronising acting style. Ace seems to be hugely popular with fans, but I cannot understand why. Please explain. Look, we've just had a whole episode, so I won't go too far into that if you don't mind, Pat, but I'll make two quick points. One is, I don't think that McCoy is a very good actor and he's probably one of the weaker ones to play the Doctor but I do think by the time we get to season 25 and certainly 26 the script team know what he's best at and they write to that and I think that you do see therefore him going, him doing what he's best at here. Um, look Ace I think he was just such a breath of fresh air at the time and just, just exciting and well acted and if it doesn't land for you, then that's, that's fine. You know, they're, they're, As I said, other things don't land for me. But when you look at what it had come before, it's so fresh. That, that's my take. Yeah, and look, I, I just waxed lyrical about Ace towards the end of that piece myself. Just the, the, the action she was given, the lines she was given, and this feeling, not that we knew that knew who was coming, of course, but now that we can look back, we can sort of see the start of an acting style and and lines and dialogue that sort of fit more with more modern who than classic who 
And maybe, Pat, you just like classic Who, and that's why it sticks out, and that's why you don't like it. I I don't know. You know, there, there are bands musically that people adore and I absolutely hate, and I'm sure they look at me and say, why do you hate this? I love this, you know, and, and, and here... I think I think this is great, but if, if it doesn't land for you, then I guess it just doesn't land, you know? Yep. Benedict Cumberbatch is that for me. I, I generally do not know why he gets paid to be an actor. <laughs> but 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 millions love him, so what do I know? Yeah, it can be like that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Moving on, Greg Jamison from the Complete Menagerie podcast, one of my favourite Doctor Who podcasts, I have to say. Greg says, Sylvester comes into his own. Starts with an outright classic, shame about the student politics of Happiness Patrol and the unholy mess of Silver Nemesis, though at least they got Anton Differing in it just in time. Dead now. Uh, Greater show was Doctor Who back at its creepy best. Very fair. Mm. Ava S. Jones tweets to us, I think it's Seven's best series. It contains Remembrance of the Daleks, which is one of my favourite episodes in all, and really does seem to be a high point for 80s Who in general. The only bad bit of it is Silver Nemesis, which is really quite, eh, not good. <laughs> Very good, Ava. Philip Edney, the other half of the Sirens of Audio podcast, writes to us on Facebook. He says, everything about season 25 was a breath of fresh air. Although the previous season had been okay, this season just nailed everything. Sylvester had found his doctor, controlling from the shadows, allowing all characters to have a voice manipulating situations but able to step in and take command at a moment's notice funny mysterious vengeful but still friendly like an uncle ace was such an intriguing character and we now had a companion with a story arc a first for the show in fact ace was pushed into the spotlight as a character with the doctor working more behind the scenes much like ian and barbara it felt like the doctor and ace had been traveling together for ages because they just got each other the chemistry between sylvester and sophie was just perfect Although tragically not enough stories, real thought had gone into the balance. Each story offered something different, and the addition of the quirky story was a real boost. Daleks and Cybermen, circuses and despots, brilliant. Production values had also stepped up so much, it felt like the show had really come of age. I think we agreed with a lot of that. Very much so. Good call, Philip. Uh, one on Facebook from Jeff Waddell. Uh, now, Rob, I yesterday read a 152-page submission to the Australian Electoral Commission from someone called Jeff Waddell. I don't think it's the same one, but Jeff, <laughs> if it was, I loved your work. Were there any mentions of Scotland in it? Uh, no, which is why I suspect it wasn't. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Spelt the same and everything. I was quite impressed. Yeah. Uh, Jeff says, Remembrance is the best classic Dalek story of them all. Happiness is a great dystopian tale, and even the Candyman is wonderfully macabre. Silver is better than most fandom says it is, and Greatest is a weird tale that has some very dark undertones. A wonderful short season, boosted by the chemistry of McCoy and Aldred, with real hints of a darker Doctor. Great season after years of treading water at best. Again, agree. (laughs) Yeah. And finally, Mark Inslee writes to us on Facebook. Growing up, I would watch classic Doctor Who on Saturdays on UK TV Gold. They did the whole run of McCoy and I loved it all. However, I often found myself having to defend Doctor Who to my family, who would mock and criticise its dated visuals and effects. I remember feeling acute embarrassment when I was walked in on watching The Happiness Patrol. How could I defend a robot made of licorice all sorts? How could I convince them it wasn't silly? It was met with much derision and mocking from my family. 
Throughout my childhood, this had been a Doctor Who story I would associate with feelings of embarrassment for the show I love so dearly. I now look at it with absolute fondness. It is dark, clever, and utterly prescient. I now appreciate and understand the subtle political messages of this piece far better, and I find the saccharine Candyman to be an unsettling and nightmarish foe. Also, Earl Sigma was one of my inspirations for learning to play the harmonica. All this makes it one of my favourite stories. Also, I have fond memories of memorising the Ringmaster's opening rap from The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's, that's very cool, Mark. Um, and, and look, I will actually mention as well that I've said before on the podcast, Dominic Glynn is my favourite Doctor Who composer, and I should have said the score that he has for The Happiness Patrol with that harmonica theme is really beautifully done and is so different to what you normally get in Doctor Who that, again, there's a sense of freshness and innovation that just comes through in the music as well. It's just, yeah... Really good season. And in the next series, is it Dominic who cracks out the guitar for Survival? In, in Survival, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he was great. He was. So that's season 25, Rob. I, wow. I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I, I feel like we only scratched the surface, you know? That's true, that's true. That's It's a series that actually genuinely has layers and actually has a lot going on, and so there is a lot to talk about. But look, don't take our word for it, just... Go and watch it. Yeah, and do, if you can, grab the target novelizations and, and basically get an extended version of, of the stories through uh, reading yeah. those. Yeah, they, they are four very good books, absolutely. Yeah. Look, to close quickly, Dave, let's uh, run through what we're watching. I want to just say I've just finished 90 episodes of All Creatures Great and Small, which was uh, a bit of a punish at times, but I'm glad I did it. Uh, if you ever want to do it, the first three seasons really are the best once they revive it back in uh, 1988 it's it's more of a greatest hits package of things they've already done i'm glad i watched it though i've got to the end and now i'm just finishing off the uh, jeremy brett sherlock holmes at the moment uh, as for what i'm watching on uh, on tv oh very nice uh, look as i mentioned at the start of the show i've been watching some joss whedon uh as i've mentioned before i've now finished season two of the boys and i was really quite impressed with uh, the way they kept that fresh and took it in a direction I wasn't expecting, so that was very cool. I discovered, I don't know how, the algorithm found for me on uh, YouTube episodes of Up Pompeii, which I'd never seen before but heard of many times. And I watched a couple of those on YouTube, and I've got to say, as much as I knew some of the humour was not appropriate for now and today, I I laughed a lot at some of it, I have to say. It was actually very funny. <laughs> Um, but looking forward to The Mandalorian coming out uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, very, very soon. Now, Dave, next month you pick the topic. Do you want to quickly explain what it is? We are talking about Alien Worlds, and in particular we're going to be highlighting each of us what we think are the best portrayed Alien Worlds in Doctor Who. Uh, and we're going to leave it up to each other to quantify that and um, define that as we see fit and, and we might also um, give a couple of shout outs to some of the worst I think as well just for a bit of fun <laughs> fantastic I'm looking forward to that me too but uh, look look, that's been a very fun episode uh, it's been fun talking about that, that series it's one that I remember well from my childhood yeah that's all I have to say all right then well until we talk uh, Alien Worlds next month or indeed until you and I talk in two weeks time Dave on Primary Sources I've been Rob and I've been Dave. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. 
Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Thank you.